0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church.
1: Good morning, May I ask You to rise, please. Our word from the Lord this morning comes to us from Romans. 11 verses 25 through to 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, upon the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they may also now receive mercy. For God is consigned to all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are these judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
0: thank you so much john for the scripture reading this morning good morning everyone my name is terry and i'm one of the pastors here and uh welcome especially if you are newer to the church family and online and may god uh, bless our morning together in the scripture we're finishing up today a very important portion of romans chapters 9 to 11 and starting in the new year we'll be getting into chapter 12 after advent and christmas now the chances are that you will not remember the Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus uh, who lived about 500 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth, but there is a chance that you'll remember one of his most famous sayings, <clears throat> and that saying was, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river, and he is not the same man. <clears throat> uh, hi- uh, Heraclitus uh, commented on that because he was a deep thinker. And indeed, that very comment reflects the kind of uh, attitude toward history that we should have, that history is always moving forward. You and I will not be the same people that we were yesterday. We are always moving, changing. It's true for your life. It's true for mine. We cannot and we do not stay the same. We are the sum total of many influences in our lives, some of which are thrust upon us and we have no control over, and some of which is our own choosing. And so we we are always in that kind of state. And uh, Heraclitus probed deep into many of the existential questions of life and of human existence. For example, he asked, Why? Why things are not in a state of constant chaos? if indeed life is this ever-flowing river of change. And the answer that, of course, we know, and I'm not sure he came to the understanding of the answer, but the Bible's answer of why things are not always in a state of chaos is because these changes that come upon us are ordered and not random. It is the sovereign wisdom of God that stands behind all of the changes of history. The biblical view of history is not static but neither is it random all things are moving toward that end that God has planned the salvation of his people for the glory of his son and what I'm describing is not only true on the big macro level that Paul is talking about in Romans 9 to 11 but it's true on the micro level it's true on the personal level it's true for you and I as well that our changes in life and all that we face are somehow in God's design ordered. And one day when we look back upon our lives, we will see some of the things that God had ordained, God had planned, even some of our screw-ups, even our disobedience and so on. And so it ought to bring great assurance into your life, this very truth of a really living, loving, sovereign God that is not letting things just randomly happen but is ordering the things of our lives? life is not a lottery. <clears throat> I was trying to think of this morning what what I could compare it to, uh, besides being a lottery the opposite and the first thought that came to my mind was the lathe you know the lathe you put a spindle on, and you, it turns fast and I remember the first time that I ever f- used a lathe was in grade eleven wood shop at high school in Walkerton District Secondary School, where I attended. And I remember that we had designed these certain uh, pieces of furniture that Mr. Platt had organized, and we designed a piece of furniture. I designed a stereo cabinet, and before he let me go crazy on the lathe with black walnut wood that was expensive, he asked me to take a piece of pine and just just play with it. And so here I was trying to make something out of that piece of pine that's that's a better picture than lottery folks God God's got the tools in his hands and life seems to be spinning sometimes pretty crazy but God is is a master craftsman he's gonna make something out of your life even some of the darkest things that God allows you to go through and so how do we view history I like the way that John Piper describes the big ages of history he starts by talking about the time of Gentile disobedience this is mostly our Old Testament view when God let the nations go their way when God said okay you wanna worship Baal or other false gods go ahead and God all that while was patiently writing his story on the people Israel he gave them the law the prophets he was writing what what humanity was designed to be through his people Israel The next stage is the the time of Jewish disobedience. We get into the New Testament and we see that the Jewish people rejected the very Messiah that was raised up in their family line and was sent by God to be their Savior. Jewish disobedience. But that, that time ushered in the third, which was this time of mercy shown to millions of Gentiles. People like us and the spread of the gospel to all nations, a redeemed people. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and every person that has, is saved that is going to be saved and follow Jesus Christ, then there will come the fourth age of history which has not arrived yet, and that is the time of mercy on Israel when God will complete his redemptive plan and God is going to save a people. And the hardness that is on Israel's heart now to reject their Messiah, their, their hearts will be softened And they will come to acknowledge that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that their forefathers crucified, will be the one that they now acknowledge as Messiah. I don't know about you, but it's helpful for me to think of broad brushstrokes of history and think of where I am now, where we are now, and where we are heading according to the Word of God. A story is told of Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, Uh, Many years ago, I think he probably lived about 250 years ago or so, and uh, apparently he was having a conversation with his chaplain, and he was explaining to the chaplain that because of the influence under the atheist philosopher Voltaire at the time, he was really doubting and being skeptical of the Christian faith. And so he said to his chaplain that he felt that if if the Bible and if Christianity was was valid and real, he should have a a very simple solution, an answer that would demonstrate the fact simply that the Bible's reliable. And so he said to him, give me a proof of the inspiration of the Bible in one word. His chaplain went away and came back and said, the answer to your question, I can give you the answer. It is possible, he said to give you the proof of the inspiration of Scripture in one word. The king was surprised at his answer and how quickly he came back. And so he asked, he said, what is this magical word that carries the weight of proof of the inspiration of Scripture? And the chaplain responded and just said one word. He said, Israel. Israel. And the king was silent, the history books say. Of course, there are many convincing proofs of the validity of the Bible and of the historicity of the Christian faith and the reality of the resurrection and so on. But it is quite true that the continuing existence of Israel, the Jewish people, through more than 4,000 years of history is strikingly convincing. When you think about the the exiled people that they are dispersed, persecuted, killed throughout their history, yet preserved by God repeatedly, such a history leads many people, because of their abuse over history, leads many people to say that God does not care for them and leads other people to conclude God must really care for them, that he has kept them through such, such opposition. And indeed, that is the the second approach, is what the Bible is teaching us. Jesus tells a a parable in Matthew chapter 21. The parable of the wicked tenants, it's labeled. It's about a master, a man who buys a vineyard. He buys a piece of land, he builds a fence around the vineyard, he digs a a wine press and he builds a tower for water and he, he leases it out to tenants. And Jesus says that then he goes to another country and he leaves the tenants to tend to the, to the vineyard. The time of fruitfulness comes, the season when fruit is to be gathered, and he sends some servants to gather the fruit and the, the wage that he deserves. But when these servants are received, they are beaten and one of them is killed. The tenants see them as an opportunity. The king or the man sends more servants and they do the same to those servants. Finally, he sends his very own son. He thinks in in his mind, they will respect my son. But the parable that Jesus tells says that they beat and kill him as well because they think, now let us take the inheritance. Now, this is a parable that Jesus tells to a Jewish audience. And the conclusion of the parable in verse 21, he asks the the listeners, what will the landlord do to those tenants? And the the answer to 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 Jesus is, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and then rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruit in season. And Jesus concludes the parable with these words. Again, a Jewish audience. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. These are very strong words. You can be sure that the chief priests were offended. In Romans 9 to 11, that we're looking at, <clears throat> Paul is teaching the same truths that Jesus is teaching in parables like that God is the landowner. Israel is the tenant that God has put in charge and has asked for him, them to bring forth the fruit of a living God and His, his, his ways being made known among the nations. But instead, when they, the prophets and the priests were sent to Israel, they often rejected, their list, didn't listen. And when He sent His very own Son, they crucified Him and carried on in, in their own way. Paul uses the parable of the olive tree. We talked about that last week, and we described it, <clears throat> an olive tree. Paul talks it in Romans 11, and we, we described it with this picture that you see on stage of this tree with the flags in it. And we discussed that the root of the tree is unseen. It's the holy God that, that we worship And the trunk of the tree begins as God began with one man, Abraham, and the patriarchs. And we see that God made covenants, agreements with one group of people on earth to be a blessing to all nations. And we see that in that trunk as we went up further, we saw that God gave the law to that group of people. And God gave the prophets and he warned them and told them of the way to go. And he sent King David as a foreshadowing of the Messiah, King Jesus. And when, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, and they crucified Him. They rejected Him. And because of it, God says through Paul in this parable of the olive tree that Israel was broken off, rejected for a season. And that meant that other branches could be grafted in to where the branch of Israel was broken off, And we saw last week how God is inviting all the nations of earth to join him, to follow him, to be believers in Jesus Christ. And in Revelation, when we see the picture, the final story, we see people from every language group, every ethnicity, around the throne of Jesus Christ, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. Praise God for that incredibly heavenly vision that this parable of the olive tree presents us with. But you might ask, why then did God plan history this way? And I believe the answer is simple. Why did God plan history out the way that it it unraveled? The answer is to humble all people on the face of this planet, Jew and Gentile, and to exalt the only one that is worthy of being exalted, Jesus Christ. That's exactly why God planned history out. This way, as we're going to see in the scripture today, Paul is prophesying that a time is coming when all non-Jewish peoples will come into Jesus Christ, every person that is ever going to be saved, and then there's this hardening that is on Israel will be softened, and we will see a final ingathering of Israel. I'd like to share three things this morning, and the first thing I want to talk about is the mystery revealing God's means of salvation. I start with verse 25 if you have your Bibles. Lest you be wise, Paul says, in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In the Bible, the word mystery does not mean something that is hidden or that cannot be understood. we got to remember that when we read the word mystery. In the Bible, when the word mystery is used, it is actually referring to something that had been hidden but is now made known. It's been revealed. A mystery in the Bible is something that has been revealed, and there's various examples of it. The mystery of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, various parables. Jesus says, this is the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. It's made known. He's making it known through parable. Or the mystery of Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.32. What is the mystery of the mystical union between you and Jesus, Christ and the church? He's made it known. It's the Holy Spirit in you. What is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16? Well, the mystery of godliness is that it's not just double down and try to be a better person. The mystery of godliness is Christ in you. It's you. It's Christ living the Christian life in you and for you and as you. That's the mystery of godliness. In 1 Corinthians 15.51, the mystery, he says, the mystery of the glorification of the saints. He says, I tell you a mystery, Paul says, (laughs) Paul says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I think I'm going to tell Sheila we should put that in the nursery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Great verse for the church nursery. I hope we get some volunteers, by the way, on that front. The changing part doesn't happen. and The parents can do that. Don't worry. So Paul says in Romans 11.25, there's a mystery. What is the mystery this time? It is how God will work salvation in a people who are yet resistant, have said no to their Messiah, they're obstinate. How will God work out salvation? Because a partial hardening has happened upon Israel. But it's only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's two aspects to this mystery. Number one, a spiritual hardening, a partial spiritual hardening on Israel. And number two, this incredible picture of God's mercy toward us Gentiles. There are various ways of understanding these two aspects of the mystery. And uh, of course, most people agree that it refers to the elect of God who will respond in faith in Christ during this church age before the second coming of Christ when God, who who knows all who are his or will be his, when God sees that all people that are ever going to come to Christ have come to Christ and are safely in the fold, spiritually speaking, then the fullness of the Gentiles will come. And when that day comes, then God will remove a hardening that has been on Israel. And then this period of history, salvation history, that we are yet awaiting, we're on this side of it, It is going to happen. And we're going to see a turning to their Messiah, Jesus Christ, by Jewish people. In fact, many people believe that in our day there are signs that this is already starting to take place. And I could quote you various ones of Jewish theologians, but there's one that is from Germany. His name is Hans-Joachim Scheps. I can't pronounce the last name. And here's what he wrote a few years back. He said the church of Jesus Christ has preserved no portrait of its Lord and Savior. If Jesus were to come again tomorrow, no Christian would know what his face looks like. But it might well be that he who is coming at the end of days, he who is awaited by the synagogue as by the church, is one and the same Face. Do you see what this Jewish teacher is acknowledging? He is acknowledging, indeed, that their long awaited Messiah and our already crucified and risen Lord and King, Jesus Christ, are one and the same. We believe they are. And indeed, if this is going to be how they come to understand Jesus when he comes, It will only be also because they also look back and acknowledge that their forefathers crucified the Lord of glory, that he is the one who paid for their sins at the cross, and he is the one that they are now awaiting as Messiah. Incredible days that we're living in. This hardening is going to lift. And then in verse 26, Paul goes on. And he says that in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does he mean, all Israel? Well, first of all, there are various interpretations. We know it cannot mean every person ever descended from Abraham. That's not true. Paul said that already in chapter 9. can't be that. It can only mean those who are spiritual heirs as well as physical heirs. Some believe that it is a reference to the entire nation of Israel who will be alive at the time of the second coming of Christ. For those of you who like labels, that's a premillennial view. Others believe that the entire it's a reference to the remnant of Israel who will come to Christ during the church age that we live in now. And again, if you like the labels, that's an amillennial view. And some try to spiritualize Israel to mean the church. I think that if we understand verses 26 to 29 properly, we cannot spiritualize Israel. Paul is talking about Israel. And as for the number, I think we need to leave that to God. Of course, we pray that as many as many descendants of Abraham who acknowledge their Messiah could be saved, I I think we want to pray for as many to come into the fold as possible. But let's move on to the second point that I'd like to refer to. The mystery reveals not only the means of salvation, but the mercy of God in salvation. (laughs) One of the dangers that we've had in in studying for the last few months, chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, is that we get fixated on the doctrine of election. Election. And we stumble over the doctrine of election because we can't compute it in our brains instead of fixating on the mercy, the doctrine of the mercy of God. And I believe that Paul's emphasis... Now, they're both present... The doctrine of election and the doctrine of mercy are present in Romans 9-11. to But I believe that Paul primarily wants to underline the doctrine of God's mercy. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because of what says, Paul says after the doxology. After he wraps this whole thing up and says, okay, I know I'm done on that. Let's move on to chapter 12, verse 1. And what does he say in chapter 12, verse 1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. You see, he's appealing to him because of the mercies of God. The NIV clarifies it even more, I think. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy. You see, it's God's mercy that Paul is really exalting. I don't think he ever thought that we'd understand the doctrine of election, even though he has to teach it because it's true. It's the mercy of God. And it's the mercy of God that Paul punctuates at the end of chapter 11 before he gets to the doxology. And then after he finishes the doxology, he's saying, verse 30, he says this, For just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jewish, disobedience, so they too, the Jewish people, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentile peoples, they, the Jewish peoples, also may now have received mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might be merciful on all. Now there's a lot there, I understand. But let's unpack two of the key words that will help us to understand what Paul is talking about. And the first word is the word consigned in verse 32. <clears throat> For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The word consigned, sancleo in Greek, means to shut in together with, to enclose, it is used to imprison. So Paul is saying that when God consigned everyone to disobedience, he is saying he has shut them in, imprisoned them, given them over to their disobedience. The only other time this word is used in the Greek New Testament is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. And Paul says there, The Scripture imprisoned. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, the second word I want to unpack is the word disobedience, which I think is misleading. The word in Greek is apathia. It's where we get our word apathetic from, apathy. It means literally apathia, not persuaded, not persuaded, the refusal to commit or believe. What's the main point that Paul is teaching? Paul is teaching here in verses 30 to 32 that both Jewish and Gentile peoples have followed the same path of unbelief, of disobedience, of apathy toward God. God sends prophets. God sends his word. God sends the law. God sends his son. God sends his spirit. And what does humanity, Jew and Gentile, do? They yawn in his face. Apathy. The things of eternity that are written in our hearts and we move on in life like the guy that just cut us off is the most important thing on earth and I'm going to go and get road rage after him. But the things of God, apathy. That's what leads to disobedience. God is saying here, Paul is saying here, that in response to this without feeling, this without having persuasion toward God, the Lord gives us over to shut us into this imprisonment of our apathy. Apathy. And only God's mercy can set us free. Jew and Gentile, only God's mercy can set us free. You can't set yourself free. Friends, this is a really relevant message. This is a really relevant passage. Paul is warning all people who are not persuaded, who have been careless in their spiritual lives, that apathy can become a prison if you are not careful. You need to call upon the only one who can set prisoners free, Christ. The main truth that Paul would have us hear today is that God gets more pleasure. God gets more pleasure from pouring out mercy upon prisoners and setting them free than he does keeping the key locked and imprisoned in the justice of their own condemnation. God gets more pleasure in setting people free through through mercy than he does in keeping them locked up in judgment because of our own apathy toward God and disobedience. And he shows no favoritism because it's the same mercy shown to Jew and Gentile. The cross is the great leveler of all people. He shows no favoritism. The same mercy extended to Israel has been extended to us, these unnatural olive branches that have been grafted in. He shows us that mercy. And so we pray today against all apathy toward God. Oh God, we pray against apathy. Right now, God, we pray against the apathy that is in this room, the apathy that is in our hearts and our minds. God, indeed, it is a prison feeling that sense of who cares about God, getting up in the morning and not having God on our minds, but all the things of the day, Lord, we confess it. We're so so clung to this world. Our feet are clay, oh God. We acknowledge, Father, that we are often imprisoned by a lack of motivation to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. So, Lord, would you help us? And we say yes to you, God. We say yes to your holy Spirit, come and break up the hard ground and and stir up the mind that is dull and awaken the spirit that is sleeping, O oh God, so that we might not be apathetic toward you and your things in christ 's name. Amen. I love the passage in Ephesians two verse twelve Remember that you you Gentiles were at that time separated separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope without god in the world but now that's incredible but now in christ jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of christ that's mercy folks god takes more joy and mercy than anything else He's a merciful God, slow to anger, rich in love, abounding in mercy, it says. Let's move to our final point this morning I want to speak of, and the mystery is of revealing God's mind. We've talked about God's means. We've talked about God's mercy, and now let's talk about God's mind in salvation. The natural response to such an incredible truth of lavish mercy to undeserving sinners cannot be apathy we we know that don't we but rather it should be this heart-rending doxology this praise that goes up to god spontaneously it's not like you have to organize it and program it it just it should be this spontaneous eruption of volatile praise that just goes up to god that you should be so kind to me i know we don't live there often but that's the, that's the proper response. That's where Paul goes. As we see the last verses of chapter 11, 33 to 36, we see Paul concludes this section with this eruption of praise and doxology. He's trying to put the right words together in the right sentences, and he's feeling absolutely inadequate to do so because no human language can describe the Almighty. And so he, he does his best under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does his best, and he knows that it's inadequate. It's a, it's a, it's a faulty description of God. A.W. Tozer writes in his book called The Knowledge of the Holy that the, what comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, in his book called Miracles, he describes a shellfish that tries to tell other shellfish what human beings are like. Okay, can you picture that for a moment? A shellfish trying to tell other shellfish what human beings are like. And he says to them that they have no shell, and that they're not attached to this rock-like substance like we are, and they don't live in the water, and he goes on and on, and the other shellfish are trying to understand what humans are like. And here's what their ending conclusion is. They end up believing that humans are famished jelly existing in a dimensionless void. The point of C.S. Lewis is trying to make is that Just as they can't describe what humans are like, we woefully are inadequate to describe what God is like. Our language to describe the almighty and everlasting God who dwells in unapproachable light falls far short. And so I don't want to end this message and try to to unpack exegetically what is the wisdom of God and what is the knowledge of God. And I'm not going to go there because it's going to fall short, because his, his ways are, are unsearchable, his ways are inscrutable, and all the language that we could muster feels so lame and so feeble, and yet I know that when we die, and when we have that one first second in the presence of God, more will be known of God than a thousand sermons could ever accomplish. Just that one split second in the presence of God will be sufficient to instruct us and to to result in that eruption of praise and doxology back to God than any sermon could ever do. So can I tell you, just for a moment as we conclude this day, can I tell you what I picture in verses 33 to 36 as Paul is writing these words? Can I tell you what I picture in my mind? I picture Paul taking off of his sand his sandals recognizing that he's on holy ground I picture Paul putting aside in his mind all of the questions of the mysteries and the things that he still doesn't understand I picture Paul getting up from wherever he is seated as he is been sitting with the scribe he talks about the guy that's writing Romans in chapter 16 verse 22 his name is tertius a young scribe that's writing and I picture in my mind that the young scribe stays seated with his quill in hand ready to keep on writing and I picture the aged apostle rising up taking off his sandals looking towards heaven raising up his hands in the air and then he opens his mouth and the the scribe is ready and guess what he says the first word out of paul's mouth is oh that's where he stops it's the greek were uh, it's the greek letter omega the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He just says, Oh. Do you want to know what the second word that Paul says after he says, Oh? He says, depth. That's what he says. You can look at it in the Greek text. He says, oh, and then he says depth or deep. You see, Paul's Paul's struggling here. Just put language that's going to describe God. And and we're going to enter into Paul's struggle this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now. I'm going to ask you to put aside all of the mysteries that you don't understand about theology and about God and about your own life. I'm going to ask you to just enter into this inexpressible, inscrutable, unsearchable ways of God that Paul is attempting to articulate. And with Paul, be willing to say, oh, let me read it first of all to you and then I'm going to ask you to follow along again in silence. Oh depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How How inscrutable his ways. For who, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you stand in silence with me? Oh, depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to God that he should be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him, all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
1: Father, thank you so much for your holiness and that you are so far above us. And I pray that we would always remember that and that you would take away all the apathy that we have towards you. And I pray that you would bless everyone going from here